Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'alif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulihi al-kareem wa ba'd. So mashallah, um, it's a great honor and a great privilege uh, to be with all of you. Uh, we're still exploring Imam Maulud's uh, didactic poem, Matharat al-Qulub, or the diseases of the heart. And it's a very interesting uh, poem uh, that has been adapted to book form here. Um, he prescribes cures after first diagnosing the different diseases of the heart. And this is the knowledge, as I was saying, that's relevant to all of us. Um, really, it's relevant to all of our species. You know, if we look at the heart and we make it the focal point of our assessment of human beings, these are perennial problems, right? In the filigesadi mudra, the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, "Truly, in the body there's a lump of flesh. This is across all time and across all space." Uh, the famous Christian theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, he said that. All of our technological advancement and scientific advancement, these are improved means to an unimproved end, right? Meaning we're not as people getting better. We're still struggling with envy, hatred, love of the world, displeasure with the decree of God. All of these things we still struggle with. So nothing could be more relevant. Uh, we've done this book once before. I thought that it might be a little redundant and perhaps unbearable for people to hear the same story, same anecdote, same references. So I told um, Ali Dia and the team at Tetlif, every week I need a conversational partner. You know, if I'm going to do this a second time, give people something new um, and we can see what kind of synergy comes out of the conversation of me and whoever my guest happens to be. This week, I have Ustaz Saleh Basir, who I met some time ago, we had, uh, coffee together. I think I had juice and maybe you had coffee uh, on the campus of UChicago. And I know he was studying there. Are you still studying there? Yeah, yeah still right. there. Mashallah, mashallah. How are you enjoying that? Good. It's good. I mean, I think, you know, and I'm sure you can probably relate to this too, that when you're studying a traditional institution, I was in South Africa and, um, you know, you really get into the micro of Islam, right? The furu'at, <laughs> as we say, the substantive law. But I think what I really appreciate, um, I guess, perhaps about studying Islamic studies in the academy is that you get that bird's eye view, mm -hmm. the kind of shifts, development. Broad, impressionistic. Yeah. Right. And it's different. You know, each, each kind of engagement yields its own particular uh, fawaid, you know, benefits. When you're very close, you see things that you don't see from afar. And when you are a bit zoomed out, you see things that you can't see when you're in the detail. Right? Absolutely. And so, you know, even just, you know, in, in Madrasa, we study the great Hanafi text, Al-Hidayah, mm -hmm. by Sheikh Marghinani, mm -hmm. but without really understanding what was his context, what was his milieu, we know, you know, Tariq al-Wafat or Tariq al-Wulada, the birthday, the day that he died, and we have to memorize mm -hmm. that for the exam. <laughs> but, you know, we don't know, you know, how, mm -hmm. you know, you know, why were there Hanafi scholars being produced from Mawra al-Nahar or today Central Asia, right? How mm -hmm. did Islam reach to that point? How did the Hanafi Madhab mm -hmm. reach there? How do these Muslims kind of carry? You know, I noticed that in a lot of traditional institutions, the weakest branch of study tends to be history. You know, and I, I went to Azhar. And <laughs> even at Azhar, and Azhar is probably better than some other institutions in terms of history. Still, history wasn't really a focus. You know, like you, as you mentioned, 
you can get so lost in the furuwa, right? Kind of the remote branches of rulings and theological postulates and et cetera, et cetera. And you can lose kind of this, this context. How did this come to be? Like, why, why, why is this theological movement happening here as opposed to here? And the academy, I think they, they focus on those things. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I, you know, after Mother said, I told my dad I wanted to study kind of South Asian Islamic history. And he was really taken aback. I mean, even though he is a South Asian Muslim, mm -hmm. because I think there is that kind of de-emphasizing of, of these sciences, not only, you know, you know, within the madrasa, but also other institutions. So he doesn't see um, necessarily the history on the same level as other sciences, especially mm -hmm. after doing so much traditional Islam. There were like one, one, you know, thing with another thing. <laughs> one thing without benefit yeah. with another thing without benefit. Yeah. Now today we're actually looking at kind of a, I would call a tasawwuf amali, kind of a practical, yeah. actionable spiritual purification, right? Yeah. Which I think is a good addition to or a good complement, you know, to what you're doing in the academy, right? Um, I love to see emerging academics remain connected to the community because public intellectual life is a lot different than intellectual life, right? So that although I pray, I don't know what you're doing at U Chicago exactly. I mean, back then, I, I know you wanted to do South Asian history. I think you've mentioned that you are doing that, but work with the community is always uh, a bit more hands-on. You know, people want something that they can use now, something of practical importance something of relevance, something that is germane to their everyday, mm -hmm. right? So at Tetlif, of course, we work with the Muslim community and we wanted to converse today about envy, right? Hasad, envy, which Imam Maulud mentions as a disease of the heart. Um, when you first hear the term, you know, it's a, maybe this is me, but in Arabic has this phonetic quality to me that many of the words now, I, I, I am, somewhat biased because I actually know what the words mean, but many of them, it's, it's almost as if I can hear their meaning in the phonics, right? Hasad, hasad, right? Envy, right? What are some of the immediate cognates? What are some of the things that come to mind immediately when you hear the term hasad, envy? In terms of Arabic or in terms, in terms of just all, all of the above, Arabic, life, spiritual teachings, just Initial impressions. Yeah, Hassan. No, no, and I think it's such an important question um, as we explore this topic more. But I think you know the first thing, and I'm sure you probably agree with this too, is that when someone says the word envy, it's probably the story of say the news Friday itself, right? Mm. And um, I remember when I was a small child, um, you know, we used to have this weekly tafsir. This is in California, and um, I remember you know the, one of the very few points that our teacher ever mentioned was that the fact that the, the singular story of envy within the Quran is a story of brothers, is a story of siblings. Mm. Right? Abil and Qabil, Sayyidina Yusuf, Sayyidina Yusuf. Right? And so, and so the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shows, or rather tells us, that if envy can happen in the most intimate in, mm. of relations, right, of, mm -hmm. of your own brother, and also not only just your own brother, but in a family of, of prophecy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. when, when we talk about, you know, the brothers of Yusuf, who envied Sayyidina Yusuf, these were people who were, their father was a prophet, mm -hmm. their grandfather was a prophet, mm -hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so, and according to some opinions, they were prophets. According mm-hmm. to some opinions, all of the sons of Yaakov, right? Yeah. So, it, it, you know, when I think about envy, I actually think about Shaitan, right? yeah. uh, Iblis. Um, when honor was conferred upon Adam, Iblis automatically assumed that he was being demoted. I think that, you know, when I see envy, I think this, anyone who's envious believes that God's favor is scarce. That as someone else is elevated, as someone else is promoted, as someone else is honored, that they are demoted. They are put down. They are dishonored. And it's like, no, no. Allah's fadl, Allah's grace is, is wasi'a. It's all, it, wasa'at kulla shay. It encompasses everything. You don't, there's no need to feel that because his offering was accepted and yours wasn't. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I, like, I think that envy is very closely related to insecurity. You know what I'm saying? Um, and when you're looking at insecurity, you have to ask yourself, why is it? Insecurity, I mean, at some level, we're all insecure, right? But I mean, but why do you think that is? Yeah, and I, but also with that insecurity, it's also an inflation of the self, right? So mm. they're, they're, they're almost happening simultaneously where there is the insecurity, but it's also this istihqaq, this entitlement, right? Mm-hmm. That I des- because, because really, what is it about when you envy something that's I deserve that? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the fact that, that, that this act of envy is, mm-hmm. is a door to so many other evils, like backbiting and et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a kind of separate topic, but I absolutely agree with that point. Yeah, that yeah no, I mean, he begins, Bismillah, he says, if you were to describe your desire that someone lose his blessing as envy, then your description will be accurate. So here, like, just like in terms of the Arabic, He's making a distinction between hasad and ghibta. Right? Ghibta being you desire something that someone else has, but you don't want them to lose what they have. You want to enjoy what they enjoy. So if you see someone who's financially secure and you are financially insecure, you would, you would desire to be financially secure. Or if you see someone who's married and you're single, you would also desire to be married. Or if you see someone that has ilm, someone who's knowledgeable and you aren't, aren't as knowledgeable, you would also desire to be knowledgeable. That's a ghibta. This is something that in good things is okay. Hasid is, you know, I want her to lose her blessing. I want him to lose his blessing. And the thing that perplexes me about that is that even if they did lose their blessing, what would that mean to you? You, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like, Okay, let's say the person does lose their blessing. How would this in any way benefit you? How, what aim of yours would be served in someone else losing something that God gave them? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it, it definitely ties back to the issue of ridha bil qada, right? Are you happy, you know, mm-hmm. with your destiny, with, the, with which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed for you? Mm-hmm. Right, and we know that the most kind of ultimate form of envy was also with the non-Muslims um, who who could not believe that a prophet could emerge from the Arabs. Mm-hmm. 
right? Mm-hmm. Allah knows better where he places his prophecy, his prophecy. right? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that, that, that being the most kind of ugly manifestation of that, but it's, it's the fact that you are not willing to recognize that Allah has his own plan, mm-hmm. right? That you don't control neither your destiny nor that person's destiny. And also too, I, you know, I, I think about this often, you know, if one is frustrated by some blessing that has been given to another, it also entails the, 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 the inability to recognize the blessings that have been given to you. Because if you are in a state of gratitude, how dare you uh, uh, be upset or be frustrated or be angered by what someone else has been given? I'm too busy thanking God for what I have been given to desire that someone else would, would, would lose what they've been given. So I also think that envy ties into ingratitude in some way. You know, only an ungrateful person can be envious, right? I mean, do you agree? Or? Yeah, no, and like this is why I obviously love talking to you about, you know, you know about these different topics because the, the, your ability to kind of draw out these, these multiple connections, right? That envy is that center sin of, of ingratitude, mm-hmm. of unhappiness with the laws to create backbiting, right? It's this mm-hmm. kind of start, sort of starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, yeah, you know, you know, if, let's say, if I'm envious of a person who has a higher pay, that means that I am not happy, right, with my own bounty that what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me, mm-hmm. right? And so instead of, so instead of, because, and there's two sins that go wrong there, right, mm-hmm. that take place. First mm-hmm. is the fact that it's, there's this, you have to, a shukr al mun'am, that you must thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving you that bounty, right? And so not only are you not doing that, but also, that you are wishing for that person to lose their bounty, mm-hmm. right? So that there's a kind of duality there. There's two sins happening. Right? right. The other thing that I think with stuff like that is it also entails a fixation upon one thing. Mm. So if I am envious of someone's pay grade or I'm envious of something else in their life, what about the fact that I don't know everything that they're dealing with? Right. I barely know everything that I'm dealing with. Right. You, you understand what I'm saying? So it's almost like you're envious of this one thing, but you don't know everything that comes along with that. You know, um, I think Sunday night, um, my wife said, Meghan Markle is being interviewed by Oprah. Right. This ended up, I don't, bro, I, well, I don't keep up with it. Well, I don't keep up with it. But one of the things I saw during the interview, she actually confided, or wasn't really, didn't really require confidence. She's speaking to the entire world. But she actually disclosed to Oprah that she experienced suicidal ideation while being the Duchess of whatever, you know, I guess now they're like non-active members of the royal family or something like that. And I immediately thought, how many people envied her? Like she has married into this prominent British royal family which is mostly a brand and an investment group, but it, 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 it ensures that she will be treated with privilege and preferential treatment and yada, yada, yada. And how many people looked at her life and thought, wow, I wish that was me. And she's telling you that as I was smiling and shaking hands and holding children and posing for photos, I was thinking of taking my life. So, you know, one, 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 one thing, even the people that one might envy, how do you actually know that what they have is a blessing? You know, it reminds me of what uh, Sheikh Abdul Qadr al-Jilani said. 
Everything given to you by God is neutral. If it increases you in faith, it's a blessing. If it increases you in certainty, it's a blessing. But if it increases you in warmth and distance from God, it's a curse. So how many, how many things do people look upon, right, enviously, but maybe those things are not even good for the people they envy? SubhanAllah. No, you know, you know, I was just reading the story of the great Persian Hanbali Saadi Shirazi, and he has this very, very curious story. He says that he saw this man um, making dua, weeping that, oh Allah, give me a son, right, mm -hmm. to kind of carry on my name. Mm -hmm. And um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants that dua. And this, this sort of ties into what you just mm -hmm. said about neutrality from Sayyidina Abdul Qadir Jilani. And um, so Saadi Shirazi leaves and he returns after 20 years and he mm -hmm. sees a man being kind of punished in the town square for XYZ sins. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then he asks, whose son is this? And then they said that that same father who made dua for a child, this is that same son. And that, then he yeah, has this reflection mm -hmm. that Every, that, that today we have the stereotype that if I make dua for something that it, it is a, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept it, it becomes a blessing. But sadly, that's not necessarily true. It's neutral. Mm -hmm. So even if you do make dua for something, it depends on how you engage with that. How you engage with it. A person could become ill, but that illness could increase them in iman, increase them in certainty, increase them in virtue. And likewise, a person could become wealthy and become profligate become bereft of connection with Allah, morally bankrupt after becoming wealthy. You know, I was um, joking with my wife. Um, I said, you know, my son, you know, he's gonna be rich, he's gonna be rich. You know, my son, he'll be a millionaire. And she said, we don't know if that will be good for him. Let's, let's just ask that Allah Ta'ala suffice him and that he becomes salih, mashallah, that he becomes righteous. This is much more uh, insightful, right? And much more comprehensive than just hoping that he becomes rich. And I said, no, you're absolutely right. You know, Imam Malud, he continues, in other words, if you yourself were able through some ruse to eliminate someone's blessing, you would utilize that ruse to do so. So that if you had the ability to remove their blessing, you would want to do that. And this is perhaps a great segue to talk about nazar, right? To talk about ayn, right? Uh, the evil eye or, or kind of that, that envious look that the Prophet Sallallahu informed us can actually harm people, right? It can actually harm people. And I, oh, every time I talk about the ayn, I talk about the evil eye, I remind people that part of the mission of the Prophet is to remove baseless superstition. Right, the Arabs, see, see there's, there's, there's a certain, you know, when you are living in a context that is kind of shaped and defined by a Western European kind of philosophical uh, history, you inherit certain things, uh, but you don't realize you're inheriting them, right? So many of us talk about the spiritual and the material, so that the spiritual is categorically good and the material or the materialistic is categorically bad. Whereas I think the Islamic worldview is a little different than that, right? You have bad, you have negative spirituality, right? Even though Quraysh, they were spiritual people. They believed in spirits, they were idolaters, and they were very superstitious. Mm. They had very strange, right, superstitions, right? They believed that if 
there was a new moon in the sky. You had to enter your house from the back door. Mm. And God said, well, what the go in the door. This is, this, is, this is nonsense, right? It's not yeah. that everything, I think some of us, because we live in a context that is defined by kind of a soul crushing materialism, anything that, that even uh, has, a, has a, a, a trace of spirituality is attractive to us. Mm. Oh man, they're, they're doing this or they're doing that. Like the tarot cards and the, yeah, the tarot cards. The new what's and your zodiac signs? Zodiac signs and you know palm reading yeah. and as you mentioned, astro. So oh, it's spiritual. Yeah, and because it's spiritual, it's supposed to be evaluated as good, right? It's it's spiritual. It's good. Now you have all kinds of spirituality. Some spirituality is in fact baseless, mm. right? They, they they also had another superstition that when a man and a woman were together intimately. If they were having relations in a position other than missionary sex, the child would be born cross-eyed. Mm. They believe this, right? And Allah says, what? Husband and wife can enjoy themselves any way they want to, right? That, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. That doesn't mean anything. And one of my teachers, he told me, any superstition that you are uh, susceptible to, just, you know, because of your context or your upbringing or how you grew up, you should actively try to defy it, right? So if you believe that walking under ladders is bad luck, when you see a ladder open, walk under it, right? Because that's, that's not from yeah. Wahid, that's not from Revelation. Or you believe that opening umbrellas uh, inside of doors brings bad luck, grab the umbrella, just open it up. And I go to stores, I love umbrellas. I open them, people, hey, don't, don't open them. No, it's nothing. I don't, just, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. Right? Black cat is coming. I don't get out of the way. Here, kitty, kitty. Bismillah. Salam Ali. I don't believe in that. But the Prophet said, El Ain Haq. The evil eye is true. So the evil eye is not a baseless superstition. Right? It's not something, I think some people talk about it. As though it were, oh, it's just a superstition. Right? Oh, nuzzer, nuzzer, right? No, this is real. Some people, through this kind of negative energy that is transmitted through the gaze, can harm people, right? I mean, you're Daisy. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so nuzzer is a big thing. It's a big thing. You know, yeah. that's Rightfully one thing I can so. say about Daisy. Halal me, nuzzer. <laughs> I don't care what level of religious practice, they're on that. You know, somebody's, it could be a person not religious at all. You say, man, he has a nice car. Say, mashallah. Mashallah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, you know, Nazar is, you know, culturally emphasized, which I think is, mashallah, keeping an aspect of prophetic practice alive. But yeah. I would, say, I would just I would just add to that, to that hierarchy, probably like eight-day wedding events. But. Right, eight, right, eight-day <laughs> wedding events. Halal meat, Nazar. Yeah or evil eye, but some insights about, about the evil eye. I mean, yeah, and, I mean, and I think always turning back to studying the du'as of the Prophet, والسلام, that the mm -hmm. Prophet, we always have to remember that the Prophets are the most intelligent, the sharpest, and the most brilliant people of their home, right? Mm -hmm. And looking at the Prophet's du'as, you know, and this is the kind of opposite where the Prophet says, Allahumma ja'al aini nura, Allahumma ja'al lahmi nura. That, oh Allah, mm -hmm. make my eyes light and make my, and, and he kind of, so, 
list out all of his all, all of his flesh and you know internally and externally that make all of it light Allahumma ja'al jismi nur Allahumma ja'al sha'ri nur make my body light make my hair light but rather going back to the point that you mentioned that this is a receptacle it's it's, it's a neutral receptacle right that mm -hmm. our bodies are you know whether internally or externally that it can be this manifestation of good or evil and it's about what you do with it mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but also the fact that we as human beings right can be either linked to the higher heaven, to the mal'ul a'la, to the, to the kind of faydan al-ilahi, the, the spiritual emanation, or you can link yourself to the bahimiyya, which is this, this sort of bestiality, right? Mm -hmm. This the shaytani um, nafs, right? And so if you don't, if, you, if you're not careful with it, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking about the hadith al-mishkat, right? Mm -hmm. That good people can do ayn or nazar upon other people, mm -hmm. even unwittingly, mm -hmm. right? And that, that's actually the hadith that we have, right? Of that one sahabi who saw someone, who was attractive. And mm. the Prophet said, why didn't you say MashaAllah? Mm. Right? And so even though the person didn't know, and we always have this sort of, um, st uh, not stereotype, but I would say misplaced understanding, um, you know, especially in South Asia, that it's only the haters, right? It's the haters who are out to get me. <laughs> but, but actually it's not the haters, it's, it's the lovers too who could, who could mm. hide and nuzzle you, right? Wow. And, so, and so actually it's, it's, it's supposed to, you're supposed to be more careful with them because you're, you're technically more comfortable with sharing you know you know if it's your if it's your boy you'll be like yo like this guess what happened to me guess what email i got right right, right but it, right. and it's like no but like he he's fine with me he loves me he's not going to do anything mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but that's actually the lesson there that it can not only be the haters but also the people who are most intimately connected with you who can nazar and ayin you what rasul al-sadiq al-mastuq the true and the trusted so one of the things that i think about often is the dua that we're supposed to make when we see someone enjoying a blessing that is attractive to us. This was the dua of the Prophet taught. May Allah allow you to take full use of that. You know, whatever it is, right? And after you finish with it, may he replace it with another, right? But I think the main theme there, attributing the blessing to God, this is why we're taught to say mashallah, say mashallah, because the person that one might intentionally or unintentionally envy is not the source of any blessing. This, they're the recipient of a blessing. So if you, really, if you truly desire to problematize the blessing that someone is enjoying, you know who your problem really is with. Mm -hmm, yeah. It's with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? But here he gives us some hope. He says, but if the fear of God, al-musta'an, the eternally besought, prevents you from doing so, then you are not an envious person. And this is something that I love about this text. You know, he'll talk about these internal realities. And of course, he wants to help us cleanse our insides, right? He wants us to go to that interiorized place mm. and to, 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 to purify it, right? To kind of excavate those diseases that are deeply buried, deeply ensconced so that we can be pure. We can make ourselves prophetic in that sense. We can make ourselves receptacles of divine love, but he always gives us an out. He says, okay, if you feel something, but you're not moved to act upon what you feel, then you're not an envious person. And when I read that, 
in preparation for class, I thought, what grace, what mercy Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has upon his servants. That even if we feel these, these negative, toxic feelings, as long as we don't act upon them, we're actually not envious people. SubhanAllah. Yeah, no, and if, if anything, it shows how Islam has always married the the niyyah and the amal, or the ilm and the amal, the theory and praxis, right? Which is very different than the academy. We were talking about the academy earlier, right? Where so you just learn and learn and learn. There's not really any emphasis on mm -hmm. moral, ethical conduct and behavior. Mm -hmm. But for us, exactly as you just alluded to, right? In Islam, it's always about ilm and amal, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's how you can marry these two, whether it's negatively or, or positively. Or positively. Right. And so, and so, and so, which is why it's, it's, it's such a brilliant insight that you, that you mentioned, right. That even if, that if you have a good thought and you practice upon it, then it's counted. Mm -hmm. Right. But same thing with the negative thought and that, that same hadith that comes mm -hmm. um, in Bukhari and Muslim, the idea that if you have one good mm -hmm. thought and you don't act upon it and that's out of the fadl of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You still get a reward for yeah. the good thought. Yeah. If you act upon it, you get a double reward. But if you have a bad thought, you conceive of something negative, but you prevent yourself from acting upon that, nothing is recorded against you. And this is something that should give us what have a good opinion of Allah. You know, it's almost like Allah is our judge, but we're being graded on a curve, right? Yeah. He's merciful. Allah wants us to inherit his paradise. Allah wants us to meet his Rasul at the Hawd, inshallah, right? So yes, uh, and the other thing that I find in that statement of Imam Maulud is that, and something that you said, Mr. Saleh, um, some feeling of envy is very deep. It could happen even unintentionally, even unwittingly, even, you know, you just look at something and you have a feeling uh, about it, right? And, and it's not like you intend to be envious, but that feeling, could be there right absolutely and even thinking about you know you know i don't know if this is if this is sort of tangential and you can probably comment on that but mm -hmm. even the fact that concerning yourself with someone else is also a tarkuma is a la yani thing right that you're mm -hmm. concerning yourself with something that doesn't also concern you mm -hmm. right and so when you look at someone who has something right i mean you have to ask yourself right why am I even concerned about that person in the first place? Why have I not looked into my own self, mm -hmm. right? And why have I not understood where this desire is coming mm -hmm. from? Why am I thinking this way? How are these thoughts manifesting themselves within me? But as you said, you know, a thought can, can enter into yourself without even, even allowing yourself, you know, mm -hmm. for it to be, you know, we think about the hadith of the Prophet والسلام, who was walking with his wife, Safiya radiallahu anha. Mm -hmm. And then someone said, oh, prophet of Allah, who, you know, you know, who's walking with you? Or, or sorry, they didn't ask that, or I think- He went to them. He, he went to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was just walking and he saw the Sahaba looking at him and the prophet went and clarified and that this is my wife. And mm -hmm. the Sahaba said, why would we have any negative thought about you? And the prophet mm -hmm. said that this is so that- Inna shaitan dam. Subhanallah. Shaitan right? flows in each of you like blood. Right, subhanAllah. You know, and I remember when our teacher and our Sahih Muslim teacher, which is the Hadith collection, was teaching that he was like, Don't worry about jinns. You you have one inside of you <laughs> always. He was like, Don't don't worry about possession, all that stuff. Just worry about the shaitan that's in your, in your veins. He actually passed away while he was teaching. <laughs>
Allah yarhamuhu. You know, but that hadith you mentioned, min husni islam al-mar'i, taraku ma la ya'ni, from the beauty of a man or woman's Islam is leaving things that don't concern them. You know, one of the most beautiful commentaries on this hadith, actually from Ibn al-Qayyim al-Jawziyah, in Madarij al-Salikin, Salikin, you know, he said, mentioning the worldly affairs of another person, madhan aw qubhan, to praise their affair, right? Like this gratuitous praise of what they have, or to disparage their affair. Oh, this person, what, look at this extravagant person with this car, this home, and these clothes, and look at this guy. Or if you're, oh my God, I mean, did you hear yeah. that Beyonce bought Jay-Z a private plane for his birthday, and then they went to the club and they had bottles of aces of spades, ace of spades for everybody, and this, it's dolal. It's a form of misguidance. And um, you know, I'm reminded of um, you know, a story that's related about Imam Malik. You know, Malik asked his students, is there anyone worse than someone who forfeits their hereafter? They forfeit their akhirah in pursuit of dunya. And the students uh, replied in unison, no. No one is worse than someone who gives up their akhirah because the akhirah is eternal. Pursuing the dunya, that's temporal. And Malik said, no, there's someone worse. They said, who? Someone who gives up his akhirah pursuing someone else's dunya. Right? Someone who gives up their own hereafter because they are inordinately concerned with the worldly affairs of not themselves, other people. Look at his money, look at his wife, look at his car, look at her dresses, look at her jewelry, look at her home, look at... You could be spending that time, you could, you could be using that concern on yourself, but instead you're using it on other people. It would be much easier if you just said, mashallah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, when when people kind of make this sort of tongue-in-cheek comment of how come Muslims didn't discover Facebook or how come they didn't invent the news, etc. And then I'm like, Alhamdulillah, that we didn't, because we always had the ethical benchmark of you know, even the idea of, of, of a tabloid or even a newspaper mm-hmm. is so contradictory to to the Islamic ethos of a human subject. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I was thinking about there's a famous dua of uh, Sufyan, a Thawri where he would praise God. For the blessings, and he would also praise God for the things he did not have. Think about that. So I, I thank Allah for my good health. I thank Allah for my relationships, but I also thank Allah that I'm not rich, because that might be a level of mas'uliyah, a level of responsibility that I might not be able to bear. Right? You know, I remember once we were uh, in class at Azhar. Mm. And this was, you know, uh, I don't know how, man, but we were waiting for class to start. And we started talking about Kobe Bryant. We started talking about Kobe, right? Who has since passed. At this time, of course, Kobe was still alive. And uh, somehow uh, the scandal that happened with him and the, the woman in I think Utah or something like that was brought up. 
And one student started uh, talking about Kobe and, you know, he's no role model. and He's, you know, he's no one to be admired because at the very least, he had relations with someone who wasn't his wife. Whether it was consensual, it was forced, it's disgusting either way. And our teacher just kind of overheard the conversation and he said, men Kobe, who is Kobe? <laughs> who is Kobe? And we explained to him, well, you know, this is a, you know, an American basketball star, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, you shouldn't spend so much time talking about him. He said, but I want you to think about this. He's world famous. He's a professional athlete. The level of temptation that probably exists for him is something that you all will never know. And you should thank Allah for that because you don't know how you might be mm. if you had to encounter, if you had to countenance, if you had to face that level of temptation. So just thank Allah that you haven't been tested in that way instead of talking about him. And we were all like, okay, he checked us. <laughs> he checked us, right? But it's true. So many things that you might envy a person for, maybe you should thank Allah that that isn't my test. I don't know what that's like, right? I don't, I, I don't, there are lots of rooms that people at higher levels of responsibility than I enter. I don't, I don't necessarily want to be in those rooms. I mean, I, I don't know what being in those rooms might entail, right? Sitting with heads of state and, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that, what that's like. And I don't necessarily want to know, right? And getting to a place where you can not only thank God for what you have, but thank God for what you don't have. Uh, I think this is very important. Yeah, no. And, you know, obviously the, the Sufyan, the, the two Sufyans, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the khidma, the service they did for the Ummah is very unrivaled. But, you know, even thinking about the, the South Asian Muslim culture that I come from, right? You mean where, Sufyan ibn Uyayna? Yeah. So, so um, I think they, and the hadith textbooks always say that the, the Sufyanain, nah, nah, right, nah, the, the two Sufyans, and um, you know, we always heard growing up like, oh, how come we don't have a Muslim Zuckerberg, or how come we don't have a Muslim this and a Muslim this, and you know, after you study the tradition, it's like, wait, why, why would we want a Muslim X Y Z, right? We just want, we we just want someone who has a purified self, mm -hmm. right? So don't worry about X Y Z, just focus on creating. Uh, a Muslim who has mastered his nafs, a, a Muslim who has nafsul mutma'inna, right? And so mm -hmm. when that kind of communal wish, and at least it was definitely present within my community growing up of like, we need to have, you know, these Muslim politicians or Muslim celebrities, but when that emphasis is centered on that, exactly as you said, then the, the back door of these spiritual ills kind of streaming in within the human being becomes neglected as we're seeing all around us today, mm -hmm. both within Muslim and non-Muslim communities. Yeah, no, of course. He continues that, you know, so he's, he's continuing from the last bait where he says, the last uh, verse where he says, but if the fear of God, the eternally besought, prevents you from acting on an envious thought, you are not an envious person. This is what the proof of Islam, Imam al-Ghazali, expected with hope from the bounty of the possessor of majesty and generosity. So he's saying that this uh, idea that as long as you don't act on an envious thought, you're not an envious person. He's saying, I'm taking this from a Ghazali. And what I find uh, 
you know, we've, we've, we've been referred to as the Ummah of Hawamish, right? The Ummah of the margins, mm -hmm. right? That people have no problem citing each other. They have no problem quoting each other. They have no problem attributing, uh, you know, quotes, sayings, adages to each other. So here Imam Maulud is quoting Ghazali and who better to quote, you know, than Ghazali. But he doesn't talk about something Ghazali said. He talks about something that was known of Ghazali's demeanor. That Ghazali believed that this is a part of God's, you know, his bounty, his generosity, that God does not take us to task for what what merely uh, enters our thoughts, but only what we act upon, right? And so I think this is, um, you know, I think this is, uh, beautiful in many ways because Imam Maulud is a scholar in his own right, but he's saying, "Look, my belief that God does not judge us according to what we think, but according to what we do." I'm taking this from Ghazali, so it just reminds me of Imam Suyuti, who, you know, uh, yesterday, you know, my wife and I we were having a conversation about child rearing, and you know, one of the things that uh, converts struggle with that people that were born into Muslim families probably never struggle with, is that I believe um, wholeheartedly in personal choice when it comes to faith. You know, my faith is not the outcome of kind of, uh, this is my ancestral religion that was conveyed to me by my parents. My faith is the outcome of personal conviction. And so it's my, my wife was born into a Muslim family. And so we're always um, thinking from different angles mm. about raising children. Her emphasizing building a strong culture to which the children feel attached. And me emphasizing building strong personal conviction. Because in my mind, this is what fortifies faith. You have to really believe it, right? La ikraha fiddeen for me is... It's khabar. It's, I mean, it's, it's not in chat, right? The statement, there's no compulsion in religion is not telling people you can't compel people to be religious, right? It's, it's, it's telling people you can't. It's not possible to compel someone to believe something. You can get them to pay lip service to what you want them to say, but you can't make belief enter someone's heart. And so I said to my wife yesterday, Ultimately, I want my children to feel about what I'm teaching them, what Imam Suyuti said about Imam Shafi'i. Imam Suyuti, this great Egyptian scholar, he believed in intellectual independence, right? And he would say to people, you know, I am a mujtahid mutlaq. I am a scholar of the highest authority, just like Sayyidina Shafi'i, just like Shafi'i. People would say, but you say everything Shafi'i said. He said, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm intellectually independent. It's just that I actually believe everything he said was right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I want my children to feel like, no, no, I am my own woman. I'm my own man. I have my own beliefs. It's just, I actually believe everything my dad told me was right. <laughs> he says, I, I actually believe everything he told me was right. That's what, that's, the, now, that might be a dream, right? That might be a dream, but that's what I want. Mm. That's what I want for my children, 
you know, right. you know, and Islam never, never asked people to do that, right? It never mm-hmm. asked people to just carry on مثل ما, ما وجدنا آباءنا, right? As Allah says mm-hmm. in the Quran, that the, what did the Quraysh say that we're following? What are, the ways of my father. Yeah. yeah, no, you have to believe it. And so one thing I, I find in the Islamic tradition that is very compelling is people, I think, um, toe that line very carefully of personal conviction and deference, right? So Imam Maulud is a scholar in his own you know, regard, but he's deferring to Imam Ghazali in his, his poem because that's the other part of it. I mean, yes, independence is important. And I think as Americans, we've loaded up on independence, self-esteem, personal conviction, but my Macy's or doing something because someone you admire does it. That's the other side of it, right? Sometimes people ask me, you know, Obey, what roots your Islam? Why are you still Muslim? And sometimes I think my response surprises them. It's not because of something I read. It's not because of my awrad. Sometimes it's because the best people I know are Muslims. And that I can look at them and I could think, you know, sometimes I struggle to make this thing right. I struggle to do this like it's supposed to be done. But her, she does it right, right? And if she cites Islam as a source in making her this way, there must be something true about Islam. Mm. SubhanAllah, So that deference is also a part of our tradition as well as that, that personal conviction. And balancing them is always uh, a challenge. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, even the fact of, that we as Muslims are not necessarily kind of asked to simply just restate, just going back to what I said previously, but also that there is also the element of adab, right? Mm-hmm. And I think just walking that, that line is what all of our scholars in the past did so well, right? That Imam Ghazali could have came out and said that, listen, I'm more, you know, I'm able to do logical proofs to sell what in tasdiq, therefore I'm just going to kind of start a new madhab, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, same mm-hmm. thing with, you know, Imam, as you said, Imam Suyuti or Ibn Humam or Ibn Nujayim or Ibn Abidin, any of these scholars who, you know, arguably might have written more books, right, might have studied more branches of knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, the same Although it would be hard for Imam Suyuti to write more books. Yeah. <laughs> Qu- quite a prolific yeah. you know, scholar. Yeah, you know, you know um, I think 800, 800, well, 800, 800 titles attributed to him. Yeah. So that's Baraka in their time. You know, I mean, I mean, if you calculate that, even if you write ten books a year, you start from the day that you're born. Still, <laughs> still, <laughs> still, wouldn't reach him up to you. But this is really amazing. He finishes here by saying, he said, and he's quoting Ghazali, that whoever despises envy, such that he loathes it in himself, is safeguarded from fulfilling what it customarily necessitates. So he's, he's, he's talking about the nafs al-lawama here. Mm. That even if you're not fully realized in your state, you're not a nafs al-mutma'inna. You're not this soul that's free of defect. As long as the things that are bad, the things that are negative, the things that are detrimental to your spiritual state, you loathe them in yourself, then you're safe from those things. What a beautiful idea. You know, and I think that that idea provides me with some consolation 
that, you know, I often look at many things in myself. And I'm like, dude, I can't, like, there's certain things like I'm so um, habituated to them, reacting in certain ways, uh, behaving in certain ways, feeling certain kinds of insecurity that I honestly think, man, will I ever be able to change? Will this ever be any different? Mm. And here he's saying, Ghazali is saying, as long as you dislike those things in yourself, right? You will be safeguarded from falling into what they customarily necessitate. That mm. if you know that this is something in me that I really dislike, right? That in that, you're engaging in the struggle. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about just recognizing the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what Sayyidina Yusuf says, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that first step. And so, you know, as you just brilliantly said, that once you recognize it, then that harm is mitigated, yes. right? Because then you're ready for it when it attacks. Yes. As opposed to if you don't, as opposed to the culture that we live in today, where it's, I'm going to be myself, you know, you embrace, know, embrace yourself. Yeah. Be yourself. If other people have a problem with it, something is wrong with them. Yeah. Which is right. so different from what we're saying. It's oh, absolutely. look inside, right? Mm-hmm. Perhaps. And this is not to say that there aren't bad that there aren't negative people out there, right? Mm-hmm. But this is also to say that our culture seems to overly emphasize the fault in other people. Mm-hmm. And we need to recognize that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like Sayyidina Ali, uh, you know, is quoted as saying, Allahi ahsanas. Be in the, in, in the sight of God, the best of people. And be to yourself the worst of people, mm. right? And be to the people, one of the people, right? I think some of us, you know, we are put off by people who go uh, uh, to this, this blameworthy extreme of talking about their strengths. Uh, you know, they, they big up themselves, as we say. Uh, that, that's, that's off-putting. No one likes to listen to a braggart. No one likes to, I'm this and I'm that, I'm this and I'm that. But the opposite is also blameworthy. This person that does all of this self-flagellating and I'm nothing, I'm horrible, I'm the worst. And, oh, you know, it's like- Al-Abdul Fakir Al-Haqir. You know, because sometimes, now some people use those expressions and they really uh, intend those as reminders, mm. right? Other people, what they're actually saying is, look at, look at how pious I am. Mm. I'm so pious that I can tell you I'm not pious. Can't you tell? <laughs> yeah, look at how pious I am. I'm the worst person. I'm telling you, there's no one worse than me. I'm, I, I mean, I barely even wake up for fudge. It's like, none of that's necessary. Just be one of the people. That if people were to ask, who's that? It's a good brother. And your sir is with Allah. So, uh, yeah. right? You don't. They don't say, who's that? Oh, he's the worst of us. Just ask him, he'll tell you. <laughs> Just ask him. Nor, who's that? Oh, he's the best of us. Just ask him, he'll tell you. Who's that? your good brother. You know, see him at the masjid. See him out in the community with his family, right? But if he does has, have something with Allah, that it's really between him and Allah. Yeah, right. and and then also again, just just sort of the the sicknesses or the illnesses within our culture of this sort of emphasis on being extraordinary. Don't be extraordinary. Only the prophet was extraordinary. Subhanallah. You know, there's no need to be extraordinary. There's no need to be have this incredible life journey. Just have a life journey where you obey God. That's Allah that's what people. Yeah, that, I mean that that you know I I told somebody 
when you're raised on a steady diet of biographies and biopics, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah. I think we see ourselves in this very externalized way. Yeah. You know, it's not, uh, I mean, even the way we talk about like our stories, our journeys, mm. it's something made for TV. Mm. Nothing is quotidian. Yeah. Nothing is just commonplace. Oh, you know, I mean, um, you know, I remember once, true story. I was in Humboldt Park, which is on the north side of Chicago. And um, uh, I had on a jubba. You know, at that time, I used to wear, you know, jubbas and thobes and jalabiyas much more often than I do now. And I was going out to my car. And there were some brothers that lived in Humboldt Park that had accompanied me to my car. And as we looked to the right, there was a young Puerto Rican brother, right, squeezing a brick. And he appeared like he was about to attack us with the brick. And I, looked, I said, yo, man, what's, what's good? And I think he looked at the way that we were dressed. And he was like, yo, what is this? I said, you know, well, we're Muslim and whatever. His name was Papito, little, little daddy. <laughs> His name was Papito. And we started having a conversation out there. Right. And um, we ended up talking for like two hours, me and these brothers and Papito. And at the end of the conversation, he determined, I want to take my Shahada. I want to become Muslim. Right. Now, you could smell a little liquor on his breath. He said, but I, you know, I, I am a little drunk. You know, I am a little drunk. You know what I'm saying? I said, well, go home and get some sleep. And if you're, you're serious, Come back in the morning, you know, I'll be here, take your shahada. He came back in the morning, went home, slept, came back, was in his right mind completely. So I don't know where he is now, but he accepted Islam. Well, yeah. But to this point about being extraordinary, we were talking to him about Islam and he was telling us some of his story, right? And he said one thing that for me marked him as a person of immense sincerity. He said, my, my story where I'm from, I mean, it's just regular stuff. I mean, you know, some difficulty with my father, got involved in the streets, became uh, a Latin king, just stuff that you've heard before, man. It's, I mean, it's not that special. But this stuff that you're telling me about God and the prophets, this is special. And I thought, subhanAllah. You know what I'm saying? No, it's not that special, man. And I think that many of us, as soon as anyone puts a, you know, a microphone or they say, tell your story, it's like, we've been, we're, we're, we're like filmmakers. I was born on a cloudy day. Some people would say I was born under a bad side. <laughs> it's like, our stories are so, he's like, oh, my story? And then oh. at that point, I made it. <laughs> it's always about making it, yeah. That day, he told me, you are the man. And I was. <laughs> you know, he's like, my story, oh man, it's just regular stuff. You heard it before. Yeah, I, I never doubted myself. You know, the streets, gang life, the stuff you know, the stuff you've heard before. It's nothing, it's nothing special. I was like, wow. In that moment, I said, wow. Wow, what self-actualization. Not, not like I'm 
oh, let me tell you my story. Streets, gang, life, little stuff like that. <laughs> ain't, no, ain't no big deal, man. You know what I'm Finish talking to me about God and his messenger. I haven't heard this before. This is my story. You've heard this before, right? But this, I haven't heard it before. Keep talking. I'm like, oh, I like this. I like this. He taught me that night. You know, he taught me that night. And mashallah, that's perhaps a good place to start. Open the floor, you know, for Q&A. Um, you know, Ustaz Saleh Basir is our special guest. So I think if you wanted to avail yourself of a special opportunity to have him address your questions, more of the questions should be addressed to him. If there's anything to offer by way of kind of, you know, supplementing or making an additional contribution, I will certainly try. And if anyone wants to direct the question to me, that's fine too. I'm going to start off with um, people on Zoom. And what do I do, ask of you, Ustadabel Evans, is just to repeat or a summary of the question that I'm asking you for those people on Clubhouse, inshallah. I mean, man, your radio voice sounds so smooth, man. What I do ask of you. <laughs> And for everyone tuning in on Zoom, please excuse the technical difficulties, inshallah. Um, the first question is, as an entrepreneur, I'm realizing that I was feeling envy of someone who was at, uh, someone who has a competing business and may have spoken ill of them to investors. Beyond um, this, the this Tukhara, uh, is there something else I can do to purify myself from this? Because you mentioned like the entrepreneurs and Facebook, and I think you'd be good to address this. Yeah, Jazakallah Khair. Um, obviously, Ustad Bilal Evans is our stud, so please, you know, no, if, sure. feel free to jump in at any point. I think, you know, this does become an important question, right? How do we compensate for backbiting? I remember when I was in, in you know, studying, our mother's was called Azadville, for those who know Urdu, it literally means the city of the free. It was a kind of apartheid town for Indians. Um, in apartheid South Africa. And um, a question came to our teacher saying, you know, I've backbited about someone, you know, let me go apologize to them. And our teacher was like, you've already kind of caused them harm by backbiting about them. Don't go and make them more sad by telling them that you spoke ill of them, mm. right? You're, you know, you've already caused harm to yourself. Now mm. you're gonna make your Muslim brother, Muslim brother or sister feel even more bad. Mm -hmm. So um, actually the, the ulama um, argue that it's better not to apologize to that person. And I know that they didn't address that, but I think it's helpful for people to know because I think some people do know mm -hmm. that. Um, and um, I think about this story of someone who came to Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab and said that I've committed, I think it was zina or another sin. And I, I feel incredibly guilty about it. And I don't know what to do. And that guilt that nags, mm -hmm. right? And there's a kind of, there's a sort of good guilt and there's a bad guilt. That's a separate conversation. I'm sure we'd be able to address it much more eloquently than I could. Um, but, um, and this guilt, and Sayyidina Umar al-Khattab, the first thing that he said was give charity. And then he quoted the hadith that mm. That sadaqah mm -hmm. extinguishes the fire of God. And so then Umar said, give charity until that feeling goes away. And then he drew on something that he said happened to him that during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, mm -hmm. when he not necessarily questioned, but was concerned about something that happened with the Prophet alayhi salatu wasalam. And Sayyidina Umar felt so terrible that he said that I, I gave so much charity for those years afterwards until that feeling left my heart. Mm. So, um, you know, other than istighfar and dua, I would say to definitely sort of give charity, even if it's a small amount, but regularly, you know, $5 every day, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, you would, you would know better that's in proportion to, to the amount that you make, but um, 
within the sunnah of Sayyidina Umar, I would, I would say that's, that, that, that was the way that I would go about it. MashaAllah, no, beautiful answer. And I think that, you know, the Prophet والسلام, uh, said that At-Tajru Sadunku Aminu Ma'anibiyina Wa Siddiqina Wa Shuhadat that an honest and trustworthy business person is with the martyrs, the prophets, and the righteous on the day of judgment. Because being virtuous in business is a challenge, right? And sometimes these things, we do them without even thinking about them. You know, I remember before I um, started teaching, I was a street vendor. You know, I worked on the street, selling my wares, selling my products, you know, getting out there. And I used to sell perfume. And um, once I was at like a, a trade show and many Muslims there were selling perfume. And there was an older Senegalese woman who had a booth, like three or four booths down from me. And uh, someone had purchased something from her. But I didn't know that it was from her, but they purchased something from someone in the bazaar. And they came over to my booth. And so I went into full salesman mode, trying to sell. And I'm talking so quickly that I'm not really thinking about what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so he pulled out a product and said, well, how does your product compare to this? I smelled it and I said, that's garbage. I said, that's trash. I said, I don't, I don't know where you got that from, but you should take it back. This is the real deal. And I started showing him my stuff, right? I started showing him my stuff. And he, he, he purchased something from me. The next day, I entered the bazaar, and I said salam to everybody there. And there was an older Senegalese, the older woman, she just turned away from me. She said, I see you. I see you praying. I see you reading the Mos'haf. You appear to have some knowledge of Arabic. And then you do what you did to me yesterday. And I said, did we have some negative interaction that I'm unaware of? No, he showed you my product and you called it garbage. Mm. I was watching you. I said, subhanAllah. That's when that hadith of the Prophet ﷺ hit me. That I did it so quickly. I didn't even, no, that's, that's trash. That's, that's garbage. Look, check this out. Right. She said, you really hurt me. I had never talked to this woman a day in my life. You really hurt me when you did that. All of us are here together, even though, you know, our businesses are separate. We're all Muslims. We're all trying to feed our families, right? And we actually get more baraka by supporting each other, not by tearing each other down, right? She said, you'll notice that in the traditional Muslim world, when you go to the spice market, all of the spice vendors are together. Mm. They're not trying to gain like a competitive advantage, right? All of the gold vendors, they're all together. Whatever God is going to give, he's going to give us collectively. S SIM card sellers, like <laughs> right, 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 right. They're all, they're all together. She said, this is how we're supposed to be. And it just like, you know, I still pray for her because it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was just coming through very carefully. Salam alaikum, salam alaikum. Is there some problem? No, yesterday you offended me. What I do? You call my product garbage. And this is the thing. The product wasn't even garbage. I, I somehow thought that that would induce him to buy from me. Right? She probably had better product than me. Probably was better itar than my itar. That's trash. So quickly. So I think business is one of those endeavors. It's one of those pursuits 
that you have to like really slow down and make sure that your reliance is on Allah. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be strategic. It doesn't mean that competition is always bad. Competition is a part of business, but let it be good, healthy competition. Not co competition that I try to show the virtue of what I have, not by disparaging what someone else has or what they're doing. You know, just really quickly to that really beautiful anecdote. Thank you so much for sharing. You know, in Damascus, I believe in the 12th century, someone came up to a shop seller. He was a non-Muslim and um, I think probably spice or something of that sort. And he bought and he was trying to buy a bag or a pound. And the shop seller said, no, go to him, the spice seller next door, because he hasn't had enough business today. And that person became Muslim at that moment. SubhanAllah. It, it, no, it's, it's, you know, whenever you, and I think that, you know, if Muslims are looking for something that we want to make a hallmark of our community, progressive business, man, changing, and this is why, I mean, don't get me wrong. We have a community of, um, you know, good, solid practicing professionals, engineers, lawyers, lots of physicians, Alhamdulillah, and may Allah continue to bless Amen. them and bless us with people who represent our communities, you know, in these professions. But entrepreneurs, business people, I feel like the cultures that they enter are more open-ended and they can be, uh, they have more uh, 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 leverage to transform the culture of the industry that they're engaging in, as opposed to a professional, is really a technician, you know? I mean, I'm not here to transform the landscape of what I'm doing. I'm just here to do my job well. And I'm going to be compensated well if I do my job well. Whereas a business person, you know, I can change the culture of medicine if I open a hospital, right? I can change the culture of law if I open my own practice. You know, I can change the culture of retail if I open a store or, you know, so I think, Progressive business, I'd like to see that become a hallmark of our community, inshallah. Absolutely. If I could just add one final this point. No, no, you could add two final points <laughs> to that. Um, is that, you know, even looking at Islamic history, if you look at countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, and Singapore, mm -hmm. and all those Muslim communities, they singularly became Muslim just looking at the ethical conduct of Muslim business men and women, Absolutely. which is so fascinating because then you think about, you know, and again, this is my analysis that the profession of business, because I guess it demands more of a nafsaniya or more of a sort of self, um, uh, uh, I guess, attachment or self um, benefit mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. for you to act ethically in business oh, shows so much more than if you act ethically in any other sphere. Of course. Right. Of course. And then I, I absolutely love that point that you said that Muslims have so much to offer as a kind of sort of model community that because in Islam, we do have this incredible fiqhi sort of um, model by which fuqaha um, have elaborated, you know, on the ethics of business from the 7th, 8th century, starting with Absolutely. our Prophet, and, you know, we can literally not only for Muslims, but transform economic practice and mercantile practice globally with the ethics that we have, right, that we have ethical benchmarks mm -hmm. by which that we practice business. And this is not to say that you are necessarily going to earn less money, but rather you add wealth to the community in a more sort of, um, you know, uh, permeated way. It's, you know, I, no, I, 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 I believe wholeheartedly that the next frontier for our community here in the United States is 
culture in terms of you know, artistic uh, production and also business. I think these are the next frontiers for us, but we'll all yeah. add No, and, and, and I think you're right about that. Even if you look at Iran, when Iran became Muslim, those are really the two spheres. You had mm-hmm. the Persian poet and then the Persian businessman who started mm-hmm. to now spread Islam yes. to, let's say, Bukhara. Yes, yes, yes. mashallah. So very brilliant. Alhamdulillah. Other questions, Mr. Feldman, sir. Bismillah. Uh, can you please talk more about the hadith uh, of the shaitan flows in your flows in you like blood? I heard someone say the other day that the shaitan is in our DNA, which implies that the shaitan is actually part of us. Is that the case? Bismillah uh, ar-Rahman rahim And I'm only speaking first because I, I mentioned that 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 hadith of the Prophet والسلام, you know, the Prophet ﷺ in another uh, authentic hadith uh, said to say that Aisha anha, that every person is accompanied by a personal shaitan, has a personal demon, a personal devil. And say that Aisha, always willing to ask, you know, probing and difficult questions, she said, even you? <laughs> even, what about you? The Prophet ﷺ said, even me, but... I have overcome my personal shaitan. So he only suggests that I do good. He only recommends good to me. I remember reading that for the first time and thinking to myself, dang, the Prophet is practicing Islam in such a compelling way that the devil wants to reconsider being the devil, right? You know, he's saying, Yeah, so you know, I was kind of born into this shaitan thing, but uh, I've been watching you and I'm thinking about turning over a new leaf. <laughs> you know, you know maybe, maybe there's something else. You know, he's like, What? How beautiful must he be practicing Islam? You know, I've been, I've been a devil for a while, but I'm looking at what you're doing and I'm thinking, Maybe there's something else here. Maybe, maybe there's something else to be explored, right? And he's just looking from the inside. And he's looking from the inside, right? But that is a part of our reality. And these hadith of the Prophet, what they should result in is humility. None of us should feel holier than thou. Because, you know, I am subject to that kind of shaitanic, satanic influence at any time if I'm not in remembrance and a state of vigilance with regard to how I'm engaging, how I'm acting, right? None of us should ever feel safe from the makar, right? From what Allah decrees. That's, these hadith are all about humility, right? So when you, when you hear the Prophet said, truly Satan flows in each of you like blood. It's don't ever claim purity. Don't claim purity for yourself. Don't ever think that you've reached a place where, oh, I would never be susceptible to that. I'm too pure. That could never happen to me. My practice of Islam is too strong. That, that something like that, couldn't imagine it for myself. I remember God too frequently. No, that influence is very close to you. So when you see someone struggling, know that you're just a followed waswasa away from that. That could be me. When, when you see someone and you think, man, their state is really 
depraved. You are just one devilish insinuation that is followed away from where they are. And that influence is close to you. So rather than looking down your nose at them, remember God, stay humble, be thankful. That may be the same insinuation, maybe the same impulse was suggested to me, but I was able to resist it. That person that I saw wasn't able to resist it. But we're, we're not uh, altogether different because I have a personal devil that accompanies me too. Yeah, no, I mean, you've, 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 I think, touched on all the important points, but I would just add two to that. I mean, it's, it's very curious how the prophet says, Yajri, the shaitan flows. Oh, the prophet didn't say, you know, in the shaitan, in the shaitan, the shaitan literally is flowing in all parts of your body in the way that blood flows in your body. So that in, not, not only are you sort of unsafe, but also every part of you is unsafe, right? You don't know which of your limbs Mm-hmm. Is, is sort of going to now test you. Mm-hmm. Right? That your own limbs will, will testify against you. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, but, but I also want to sort of use that point to, to sort of segue that with these inhibitions, with the fact that shaitan is in, in every limb of your body, is that that means that there's an opportunity now to struggle against shaitan. There's more opportunities to prove mm-hmm. yourself. Right. You know, and you, you know, you, you, you sort of think of what Malana Rumi said, right, when he said that, you know, let's say if a person is struggling with more sort of base or carnal desires, mm-hmm. um, that that person now has more of an opportunity to now transform mm-hmm. that from Allah this bestial to the angelic. And that's really what differentiates the human beings from all, all other makhluqat, mm-hmm. right, is that you have that option, right, Allah in every Allah. single moment. To, to transform that shaitan into in, into something more higher, right? Allah you know, as Manarumi says, that we used to be friends of angels, and now we have the opportunity to be higher than angels. Because, because the angels never had that option to turn their shaitan, right? But you have that battle, and that battle, you know, um, is really where you're going to test your mettle and your worth. Allahu Akbar, beautifully stated. Beautifully stated. Allah you better speak. Rafa Allah Shadda. My eight-year-old keeps asking me, how do we know Allah exists? How would you answer? To an eight-year-old, I would say, just trust me. <laughs> just trust me. This is real. No, it's a very um subhanAllah. Um Faith is a dhok, the taste. You know, Imam Ghazali, in terms of taqadim al-hujaj, or providing philosophical and logical proof for the existence of God, you know, um, he is one theologian that pushed that envelope maybe as far as it can be pushed. You know, he just pushed it. We just, just, and at the end, he said, faith is a dhok, it's a taste. It's something that you know through experiencing it, just like love. And this is how I would explain it to an eight-year-old. If somebody wanted to take a reductionist approach to love and say, you know, it's just a chemical reaction, 
Right? There's, there's no metaphysical reality to love. It's not like you fell in love with a woman. It's a mix of lust and carnality and serotonin and dopamine. That's all. Man. It's, not, it's not all the stuff that poets talk about and romance writers talk about. That's all nonsense. Maybe that person is articulating their reality. Maybe it is nonsense to them. Said Hussein Nasser, he said that the modern um, unanimity around the non-existence of God among quote-unquote intelligent people is like a bunch of deaf people sitting in a room in which a magnificent concerto is being played who all agree that they can't hear anything. I don't hear you hear them. Ain't that, I can't hear nothing. So there must not be anything to hear until somebody who can hear clearly walks in and says, you can't hear that? You mean you really can't hear that? I don't hear it. I can't hear it. So faith is a taste, right? And I would probably explain to my eight-year-old that right now, and I actually have a six-year-old and a five-year-old and a 14-year-old who's soon to be 15, mashallah, who I notice in her a certain inclination toward material science, material, materialistic science. She's, you know, I, I notice that in her, right? And I always say, I know that this is real because I know. And I pray that God keeps you alive long enough so that you can know. But right now, take my word for it. And she said, okay, Dad, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> you know what I'm right now, take my word. Trust me. Trust me. Right? Take my word for it. But this is something that is as real. Um, in fact, there's nothing as real as this. Um, and a good approximation is, is love. Right? Love is, love is something. Those of us that have love, those of us that are in love, mashallah, alhamdulillah, my brother just got married. May Allah bless you and bring you together in good uh, and bring good from you, inshallah. Those of us that have, you know, experienced love, uh, we know that it's so much more than just a chemical reaction. You know, we feel like, no, no, no. I was put in this person's life. This person was put in my life. There's love in my heart that has been placed there for this person. Love in her heart that has been placed there for me. And to explain it any other way, it's just unsatisfactory. And so for me, you know, um, there has always been a part of human existence that human beings have sought to explain uh, through metaphysics, through, through art, um, you know, through spirituality. That, that's God. That's God. And it's undeniable. It's as undeniable as anything that is a part of our existence, right? We're, we're actually, uh, you know, uh, homo, uh, religio, my Latin always, actus. religio, <laughs> actus, uh, you know, our species, since the dawn of human beings with a distinctly human consciousness has had ideation about metaphysical things, God, faith, the next light, where we came from, things unseen, uh, for a person to get to a place where they say, you know, all of that was nonsense. All of that was a waste of time because it can't be explained via science. 
what a horrible way to look at human beings. What a horrible way to look at life. Yeah, you know, and even Islamic civilization, it was always about putting things in its place, right? You can't use art to explain math and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And Muslims understood that from the beginning. I mean, they can complement each other. Um, you know, I also think about what Iqbal said, that, you know, you have psychology, you have biology, you have chemistry, you have physics. And sure, they all speak truths. But what happens when you sort of combine all of these sciences together? Mm -hmm. Then what do they say as unitary? And then he says, that's where Islam comes in. That's, that's where that's where faith comes in when you sort of combine all of these sciences together um you know obviously i'm not i'm not a father so i, I defer the, so the way the love is but i guess i was a child once <laughs> or i'm still a child <laughs> <laughs> and um you know and i always thought for me it was just more seeing my parents and specifically my father who was so devoted to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the fact that he took care of us so well that it had to be real it, there was just no way. That yeah, it, it had to be real. No, you know, you know I, I remember one Christian colleague saying to me, you know, the way Muslims pray, he said, I mean, you have to like do this like ritual washing, and then you have to like uh, you know, face the direction of Mecca, and you have to like say these specific things, and you have to like bow, you have to put your face on the ground. And I said to him, what's so impressive about that to you? He said, because the way you pray, it suggests that if this thing is not real, nothing else in my life is intelligible. Nothing else. It's almost like, I mean, you know, the only thing I could imagine is my mom telling me, son, I'm not your mom. I'm like, what? You're not? <laughs> it would be, he's like, that's how Muslims pray. That your prayer is like you're committed on that level. That if this isn't real, Five times daily, ritual washing, knowing where Mecca is, knowing if you've passed gas. You're doing all of this for something that's not real? Then nothing else in your life makes sense. Your life is unintelligible. Like, now my life doesn't make much sense. <laughs> no, no, see, if this, if, if deed is not real, my life doesn't make much sense. I'm, I'm, I really, it would be like, and I realize now, it would be something akin to madness that I really am, um, you know, um, demented, mm. right? Um, and when children see that, it's like, no, no, son, there's nothing realer in my life. There's nothing realer in my life. I think that that, that does have an impression on them. Yeah, you know, you know and just totally sort of co commenting on that is that, you know, when I saw my dad exactly just perform it and the fact that he was such a good father, you know, and that intimate link, you know, mm -hmm. I think as a child means that, you know, even if you can't conceptualize God at that moment, that link with your parents, you know, who are good Muslims. And so if you as a parent can practice Islam, display Islam to your children, so well, you know, your child won't mm -hmm. question it. Which is, you know, the other side of that, kind of the mafhum al mukhalifa is most of the Muslims, especially college-aged uh, Muslims, that struggle with faith, struggle with faith in God, you'll notice that they had very tyrannical fathers, mm. bad experience with their fathers. That, in my experience, is kind of the common thread of people that are disaffected with God and Islam, bad relationships with their fathers. And, you know, for us as parents, I am a parent, you know, it, 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 uh, it's actually very weighty and scary 
that your children will come to know God through you. And, you know, you have, uh, I don't know why my memory fails me. You have lots of writings that talk about how for the child, Rahma is really the mother. And kind of as the, as the perspective grows, they can see God above the mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But the mother almost has a God-like role in the life of the child, right? Yeah. Um, so for us as dads, it's like, if you facilitate that process of the child learning rahma, right, from the mother, then you may be okay. But if you're interrupting that, arguing with the mother, making life difficult for her, then you could not only be hurting her, but also hurting the child. Mm. Yeah. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Other, other things. Bismillah. So we, we have two more questions online. I'm only going to ask one of those questions for the sake of time. And if anyone in the space have a question, um, I'm going to um, come to you and hold the mic and you can ask um, the question, inshallah. The question I'm going to ask online is, um, so the aspect of evil eye, when you unintentionally give this, how do you prevent this? For example, when do you, uh, for example, when you do something good, uh, and, and I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, so the aspect of the evil eye, when is it, when you, un- un- excuse me, when you unintentionally give this, how to prevent this? For example, when you do something good and you are proud of yourself and then you fall on your face. Hmm. So if, if I understand the question is that how do you prevent it from unintentionally giving it to other people? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely great. I mean, the Prophet told us, just say, mashallah ta'ala, right? Mm-hmm. Anytime you see a blessing from mm-hmm. anyone, even if it's your own self, say, mashallah, because mm-hmm. you know the story of Surah Kaha, right? Yes. Of the two brothers. Right? The brother shides the other brother that, why don't you say, mashallah, to your own self? Mm-hmm. And this is not for those sort of Instagram captions of like, oh, mashallah to me. That's <laughs> very, very different than, than what, <laughs> yeah, where it's like only mashallah to me, but it's yeah, yeah, <laughs> very different, yeah. Um, where mashallah has become weaponized. It's just a sort of Muslim cultural marker, not as something meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, and so just catching yourself every single time that you see a blessing from either yourself or another person. Just say mashallah, and your responsibility is complete. There's nothing else that you can do. Not, it, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Right? I can't, can't add to that. And, I and I would say if it's a post facto sort of thing where it's like, wait, I've, I've saw a blessing and I sort of had this desire that this person didn't want it. And, you know, I feel like now that person is suffering, might I have contributed to that? Make dua for that person, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, Allah, please, you know, better their condition. Get up in the middle of the night, make dua for them. Weep for them that, oh, Allah, give them a better life, give them a better condition. But also making dua for your own, that forgive me for, 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 for thinking, having those thoughts or practicing mm-hmm. on those thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying mashallah, et cetera. That's, that, that's what I would say. That's a good place to end it. Does anyone in the space have any questions? Well, I'll ask the last question online. Um, if you don't act upon your our thoughts, but we feel guilty upon them. What is the best way to get rid of those guilty feelings and thoughts? I'll give you the last thought, inshallah. Thank you for joining us today, Ustaz Saleh. And, uh, you know, this was uh, 
a very enriching conversation and uh and actually quite enjoyable you know i enjoyed myself um uh i hope you guys enjoyed it too but i had a good time you know um so it would it would be a great honor if you you close us out with this and then we do i inshallah no, Jazakallah so much for those words. Obviously, not deserving them at all. Happy, you know, happy to share this space, and thank you so much for allowing me to to share whatever words that my teachers may Allah bless them first and foremost. And they all you know, and I, I spoke about this earlier. The idea of guilt, I think it's so fascinating because, as Ustad Ubaidullah mentioned, that we're sort of heirs to this Western Christian tradition, and you know, within Christianity, right? And I always speak about this in whatever khutbah that I go that in Islam we don't have the concept of the original sin. Right, because our first person was a prophet, but and all the prophets are sinless, right? And so we don't, so we don't have that same tradition. And Islam has always been really fast and uh, really, really um, wonderful in the way that it's been able to navigate that you these feelings of guilt um, can either again be good or negative for you, right? Mm -hmm. And that that feeling after a sin, that guilt, that you're supposed to transform that then now, right? But then there's also a bad a bad kind of guilt because not all guilt is good. For Right. And, and I would say this is what my teachers have taught us, that there is this sort of waswasa, this sort of shaitani insinuation. Yes, because yes, guilt can become yes. Right. It can become despair. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and you would argue that it's probably the first step to despair. Mm -hmm. Right. The, those mm -hmm. first elements, and which is why it's, you, have to, you have to nip it in its bud. Right. Mm -hmm. And so those, those elements, and you have to ask yourself, right, are these elements, are these feelings of guilt, are they coming from a good place? Are they making me a better person? Or are they, are they just sort of taking my mind to a sort of valley that you're wandering in right mm -hmm. and so you need to have that conversation with yourself and so if guilt is sort of asking you to make doba then i would say or to rectify yourself then that's a good guilt right but after you've made doba and after you've sort of rectified that then if that guilt still lingers and persists then you need to tell yourself that this is not a good thing anymore absolutely right and so, and so, which is why the institution of Toba then becomes so important, right? And we don't have any intermediary of priest or X, Y, Z. It's just you and Allah. It's just you and God. Um, and, and once you've addressed that, right, once you've made Toba, once you've given charity, um, wait for that feeling to disappear. If it doesn't, then right? You know, a person that believes that their sin is unpardonable, or mm -hmm. unforgivable. Yeah. They've grossly underestimated God. You think that your sin is greater than his capacity to forgive? Then you don't know our Lord. You know, and we, we always talk about how drinking or doing, you know, you know, fornication is haram, but also, you know, not um, uh, sort of not having hope in God is also haram. It's also haram. Right? The command is for for obligation, obligation. Right? so this is also an obligation that's also a sort of fard, a commandment upon you to not mm -hmm. lose hope and we know this and you can obviously speak so much more about this than i can psychotherapy right mm -hmm. one of the first elements that they tell you is that be hopeful right look have, for something that's better you have to you have right? to you have to absolutely not that i know anything about psychotherapy <laughs> <laughs> Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma salli ala sayyidina wa sanadina wa rasoolina wa habibina wa ma'asumina wa maqsoodina wa manzoomina Muhammad wa ala alihi alladhina qamu bi nusrat al-deen al-qawim wa ala sahbihi alladhina hum awuhu bi rasool al-kareem Allahumma salli ala jami'a al-malaika wal-mursaleen farham ibadaka al-mu'minin min ahli al-samawati wal-ardin 
O Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, first we ask you for paradise. We beg you of paradise. O Allah, we ask you to forgive our mothers, our fathers, their mothers, their fathers. O Allah, we ask you that to accept this gathering. We ask you, O Allah, to help us to discipline ourselves, to make ourselves kalima, to be subjugated to the kalima, la ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah. We ask you, O Allah, to resurrect us with prophets, with siddiqeen, with shuhada, on the day of judgment, with our families. O Allah, when we meet the Prophet, let the Prophet be pleased with us. And he says, Muftakhiran, Hadha min ummati, Hadha min ummati. This person was from my ummah. This person was from my ummah. O Allah, we ask you for all of those Muslims who have passed, who are in the barzakh, in the intermediate space, that O Allah, we ask you to forgive them, to send the thawab of our good deeds to them. We ask you, O Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to, to, to bless all of us with your mercy. O Allah, we ask you to, 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 to gift us that the, the hope within your mercy the, in the infiniteness of your mercy. Wa sallallahumma ala sayyidina wa sanadina Muhammad bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimin. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.